Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Welcome to another incredible installment of the Guide to the Universe, or something like that. No, the Guide to Existence. Gosh, I always get that mixed up. All right, here we are again with another amazing Torah portion. In fact, this one is going to be the grand finale of the book of Genesis. We're concluding the book of Bereshis, the last Parsha, and we are moving on next week to Shemos, the book of Exodus, which begins the story of Moses. So this is really the end, the final story of the forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, concluding with the descent of the Jewish people to Egypt, the death of Yaakov, the death of Yosef. And before he dies, Yaakov blesses um, all of his children, the 12 tribes, and also gives them some criticism, some stinging rebuke for uh, some of their shortcomings, and perhaps also some prophecy in there, and passes away. Just interesting historical note, Yaakov and Yosef are both mummified in Egypt, which is pretty crazy, because it's not really kosher. But then they also receive a kosher Jewish burial. Yaakov requests to be um, buried in, in Israel. And Yaakov's request is granted. His kids bury him in Israel. And Yosef is buried in, um, in Egypt. And then his coffin is t dug up and he's brought with the Jewish people back to Israel at the time of the Exodus. John, welcome, welcome. Good to see you. Kind of. Good to see a good nice to see a good picture of you. All right, you're in the uh you're in the shower. I get it. All right. <laughs> okay. So tonight, guys, let's let's get started. This week's parsha is unique of I believe all the parshas in the Torah. In that every parsha, okay, bear with me. Now we set out to talk about a mitzvah every week. And I took a break because I had a baby and couldn't think. But this week we have a mitzvah to talk about. We are going to bring up some oldie but goodie um, Torah content from previous years, but we're going to add in a mitzvah to it. Okay? So the mitzvah we're going to talk about tonight is the mitzvah of Shema, saying the Shema. And we'll learn a little bit about some of the deeper meaning about the Shema and the relationship to the Shema in this week's Parsha. So Every part in the Torah, as far as I know, begins with a paragraph break. The Torah, as we know, is written without punctuation, without vowels. But there is something that is found in the Torah, and that's spaces. You find occasionally spaces at the end of a sentence, which would be like a paragraph break, or spaces between sentences, which would be like a shorter break between ideas. So that is found throughout the Torah. And the way we know, so how do we know when one Parsha begins and one Parsha ends? Does anyone know? So the Parshas are totally arbitrary. There's no real beginning of a Parsha and end of a Parsha in the Torah. Right? When we read a Torah portion, it was instituted by, um, I believe, maybe Ezra. I don't remember exactly when, but it was instituted that we would read the Torah and, and there were different customs of how often to finish the Torah. So in Babylon, the Torah, I believe the Torah was finished every year, like we do. Finish the entire Torah every year. In Israel, it was finished, I think, every three years. So they broke it down differently. 
So they had different weekly parshas. But the tradition that we have of where the parshas begin and end is passed down is very ancient. But it's arbitrary. If you open the Torah, you can't tell where one parsha begins and one parsha ends. What you can tell is where one idea begins and one idea ends because of these spaces. So every parsha begins with a space, clearly delineated, separated from the previous parsha, except for this one. Yes. Hundred percent. Good question. Yes, every Torah scroll is a direct copy of a previous Torah scroll. The words have to appear on the correct line. They have to co appear the correct size. Some letters are bigger than others, and they're tradition. And we don't know why. Randomly, you will encounter certain letters in the Torah that are blown up or that are really small, and each one has their own interpretation. But these are traditions that go all the way back to Moses. Why, and and it's not clear. So, so too, the spaces are direct tradition. Any Torah scroll you find in the world, whether it's a Yemenite Torah scroll or a Russian Torah scroll or a Moroccan Torah scroll, is going to have the same spaces. There are, I believe, five differences throughout all the known Torah scrolls in the world. Five differences. Now, if you compare that to the Christian Bible, there are thousands of differences. And Christianity is much newer. And yet there are still thousands of differences in the different translations on, in, in literally in the whole paragraph, sentences, words, spelling. But in the Torah, there are only five differences. And those five differences are just in letters that don't affect the, the, the spelling or the meaning of the word. It's just letters where you could have an aleph or an ayin or a hey, or right? Like literally um, very minute differences. So. The question is why? Why is this Parsha, which we have a tradition that it's a Parsha. It's a different, it's supposed to be read on a different Shabbos, and yet there's no break. So Rashi brings two interpretations. There is a third in the Talmud, but we'll just stick with Rashi's two for tonight. And Rashi says, answer number one, Rashi says, because in this week's Parsha, Yaakov dies. Oh, you're out of the shower so fast? It, it, John. <laughs> Uh, in this week's Parsha, Yaakov dies, and the Parsha is called Vayechi, which means, and he lived, but it's about the death of Yaakov. And it says, Rashi says that when Yaakov died, the eyes and the hearts of the Jewish people became closed due to the suffering of the slavery, which began at that time. So the eyes and the and the hearts of the Jewish people became closed, and therefore the Torah portion is closed. There's no opening at the beginning. That's answer number one. The problem with answer number one that Rashi brings is that the, the slavery didn't happen for several decades later after the death of Yaakov. So the slavery only began after the 12 tribes passed away. And Levi lived at least another 25 years later. I didn't work out the exact math, but at least another 25 years. So not clear why their eyes and hearts became closed now if the slavery didn't happen yet. So what does Rashi mean? That the eyes and the hearts became closed because of the slavery. Point number two, Rashi says, is because of a, an interesting Talmudic story. 
which is based on this week's Parsha. The Torah says like this, and I'll read you what it says in the Torah, and then I'll tell you what the Talmud says. Yaakov called all of his sons together, and he said as follows. Yaakov called for his sons, and he said, gather around, and I will tell you what will happen at the end of time. Essentially, Yaakov, the Talmud says Yaakov wanted to reveal when Mashiach would come. How would history end? What's the end of this story of human history? And then, that's what the Torah says. Yaakov said, gather around and let me tell you what will happen at the end of time. And then his sons gathered around. And he said, listen to Israel, your father. He says, gather around the children of Yaakov and listen to Israel, your father. Just interesting side point. I don't know if we're going to get to the answer this tonight, but it's interesting that Yaakov has two names and they appear randomly throughout the Torah. Sometimes he's called Yaakov, sometimes he's called Israel. In this verse, he's called both Yaakov, gather around the sons of Yaakov and listen to Israel, your father. So interesting, which is what's the difference? And then he starts blessing everyone, and he goes through all his sons in age order. But what happened? He, he said, let, come around and let me tell you what's going to happen at the end of time. So the Talmud says as follows, that Yaakov was about to reveal to them when Mashiach would come. And suddenly, his prophecy left him. And he couldn't see the vision anymore. And then he got worried that maybe one of his kids was not kosher. Maybe he had a bad seed. Maybe he had an, an Esav or a Yishmal, and he got very nervous, and that's why the prophecy was leaving him. And so then all his sons turned to him, and the Talmud says, and they said, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Listen, Israel, our Father, Hashem our God, Hashem is one. Just like Hashem is one, so we all too are one. You have nothing to worry about. We're all kosher. That's what the Talmud says. And then Yaakov calmed down. But, so he realized that he wasn't, he wasn't able to say when Mashiach's going to come. Not because his kids weren't kosher, but because for some reason he wasn't allowed to reveal that to us. So the question is, he wasn't allowed to reveal it. So why, why did he want to reveal it? And why was he not allowed to reveal it? You guys got Got me? So Rashi says, second answer of why the Parsha is closed is because Yaakov wanted to reveal the end of time and he got closed. His prophecy became closed. Okay, so those are the two answers. And one more question, since we're going to talk about the Shema, is that Yaakov, after being separated from his son for many, many years, is reunited with Yosef last week in last week's Parsha. His beloved son, Yosef, who was sold into slavery. Yaakov thought he was dead for, I believe, 22 years. He's finally reunited with Yosef, and they hug each other. And Yosef cries. And listen to what the Torah says there. It says... Second... When Yosef appeared before his father, he fell on his neck and wept 
profusely. And the question is, why didn't Yaakov cry? Why did only Yosef cry? So Rashi says, why, why didn't Yaakov cry? Because Yaakov was in the middle of doing something else at that moment. Yosef and Yaakov are reunited. Yaakov, Yosef is crying. Father, he hugs him. And Yaakov was not crying. Why? Because he was busy. What was he doing? He was saying Shema. What? Like, you just saw your son, 22 years. Like, give him a cry back. But instead, he's, he's saying the Shema. What's the connection? Why is he saying it then? Doesn't make a lot of sense. And then he does speak a second later. He says, if I would die now, I would be comforted for having seen your face and knowing that you're still alive. So he's, he was happy to see his son. But the question is, why did he say Shema first? Okay, so let's, let's try to understand the Shema a little bit and try to put together these pieces of why the Jewish, why, what's the connection between all these answers of the eyes and the hearts of the Jewish people being closed because of the slavery? What slavery? I don't know. The slavery that didn't start yet. So why is the hearts not eyes and the hearts being closed now of the Jewish people after the death of Yaakov if the slavery didn't take place for several generations later? Question number two: Why couldn't Yaakov reveal the end? Why couldn't he tell us when Mashiach is coming, what it's going to be like? And why was the response of the Jewish people Shema of his sons Shema? What's the connection to the Shema? It seems like the Shema, which we don't yet have a mitzvah to say Shema yet, it's revealed many. Many parshas later, we get the commandment of the Shema. So how is this the sort of precursor to Shema? And then yet even last week's parsha, Yaakov's already saying the Shema. Why is he saying the Shema there at this very weird reunion moment of the reunion with him and Yaakov and Yosef? So I want you guys to think about the Shema for a second, okay? And I'm going to write it in the chat box. And I want you to tell me, what are the imperative words? What words jump out at you as being problematic. Okay. Listen, Israel, Hashem, our God, Elokeinu, Hashem is one. <clears throat> and it depends how deep you want to go. Because if you want to go really deep, we can look at some Hebrew also. And I'll just throw out the Hebrew that you got to know is the word for our God is Eloheinu. And if you've heard this from me before, you might know what's problematic with that word. But look at it yourselves now in the English first and tell me what's problematic, if anything. What do you think the main point is? What word do we, is the what what's the where, what's the imperative word that we need to focus on, and and what's the real message? Okay, well you could say here. Sorry, it could say here, and here and listen. Okay, what so. You, so you want to know why does it say Israel at all?
Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Okay. But the truth is, this is not a prayer. The Shema is not a prayer. Do you know that? What is the Shema? Yeah, a declaration, right? It's a meditation or a declaration, statement. What do you guys think? The main point, the main point is God is one. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to see that cricket. Close the door, please. Um, that God is one. Clearly, that's the main point of the Shema, right? That God is one. God is one. God is all there is. God is absolute oneness, absolute unity. John, we talked about this this week. I give a lot of classes on this. That God is the, the ultimate reality that we live in the matrix. And all there is is God. All right? That's the only reality. We live inside God's mind. That It's the most radical statement of of ultimate reality of monotheism, radical monotheism, that all there is is God, right? God is one, not that there's one God, one man in the sky, but all there is is God. That's the, the real meaning of the Shema. But if that's the message, yeah, Mike, what? Right. The retroactive development card. Uh, so, in this week's part, his children said it. Yeah, the tribe, this is the beginning of the establishment of the nation. We're just becoming, we're becoming a nation right now, really, in Egypt. Which, by the way, is another question that I have. I'm just going to throw out another question, which is very weird. Yaakov gives birth to the 12 tribes. Where? Where are the 12 tribes born? No, they're not born in Israel. They're born in Syria. The Jewish nation is born where? In Egypt. Jewish nation is born in Egypt right now. Through the slavery, we become a nation now. We're becoming a nation. The tribes are now merging together as one. Right? The Torah is given where? Sinai Desert, not in Israel. Again, very interesting. It's a question I have. I, I, and, uh, maybe we'll talk about it if there's time. But it's very interesting. So now, if statement of the Shema, the main point is Hashem is one. So what's extra or weird about the Shema? Could I say that shorter? God is one. So what's extra? 
Well, well, just in the Shema. <laughs> Why does it say Hashem? Well, not. What do you mean by stating the obvious? Is he? Ah, uh, oh, so is Hashem the God of Israel? What does it mean? What does it mean? Hashem is our God. That's not the God I believe in. I believe in a God who's everyone's God. Excellent. So at the time of the Torah, the majority of the world does not believe in God. They believe in idols. So it's interesting though. But is a, does that mean Hashem's our God? So Yeah. Hashem is my God. I'm just making a statement of Hashem is my God. But he's not really my God. He's your God too. And 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 the guy who's worshiping an idol in India, he's his God too. So so what what does it mean? Mike, I just had to mute you because you had your lawnmower going. <laughs> um Uh-huh. So law school is working for you because this is actually what Rashi says. If you look in the Torah where the Shema is actually commanded, where we actually read the verses of the Shema in Deuteronomy, Rashi translates the Shema as follows. Listen, Israel, Hashem, who right now is our God. Right now, we're the only ones who know him and believe in him. But someday, Hashem will be one. His name will be one in the entire world. Someday, the whole world will recognize him. So in the very statement of the Shema, we have a recognition of the fact that we're living in an imperfect reality right now. In a transitory state. In a state that's going towards the Messianic era where the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of God where the whole world will be connected to, to the highest spiritual levels and understanding. But right now, he's just ours. And that's a tragedy. It's not a good thing that he's ours. And in fact, this becomes the main point of the Shema, according to Rashi. Not that Hashem's one, that Hashem is just ours. Not in a good way, in a tragic way, Hashem is just ours. You get that? And let's take it one step further. Let's look at the Hebrew. Elo Kenu. What does that mean? Our God? Are you sure, Ronnie? Ronnie, I know you speak Hebrew. So let's 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 try to understand it. What what is Elo Kenu? It's made up of two different it's made up of a, a verb and a conject a sub a thing at the end. I forget what you call that. A new. What does new do at the end of the word? Ah. Elokeinu actually is made up of two of two words. It's made up of the word Elohim, which means, I'll tell you in a second, translated as God. And new means our. 
Okay, but Elohim Shalanu. It means God of us. But the word Elohim is really problematic because if you put an im at the end of a Hebrew word, John, what do you get? So, so if I have one John, it's called John, right? How do I say two Johns in Hebrew or three Johns? Janim, right. <laughs> Janim. So Elohim, what does Elohim mean? It means gods. And that's really problematic because I get that He's our God, but I don't think he's our gods because we're saying there's one God in the Shema. We're saying God is all there is. So how can you tell me there's one that there's here? Israel, our gods, Hashem is one. What do you mean? Do we believe in many gods or not? What do you say? No, we only believe in one, right? Wrong. We believe in many gods. We say it in the Shema. Many gods. But you know what? What are the many gods? <laughs> I thought we were monotheistic. Rabbi, what are you telling me now? I thought that the Shema is a declaration of monotheism. The answer is, is that we do believe in many gods. <clears throat> what are the many gods? The word Elohim really translates directly as powers or forces. We believe that there are many forces controlling our destiny. And think about it. Look around the world. Pretend that you were an ancient person looking at the world. What would you see if you go outside and you're trying to plant your crops? What forces are at are controlling your destiny? Sunlight? Yeah? Rain? The gov wait, we'll get to the government in a second. Sunlight, rain, right? The the planting, flower, crop, gods, right? If you if you look around the, your life, especially in the ancient world, you see many gods controlling your destiny. God of war, God of love, God of money. And now look at your life now. We don't have to live in the ancient world to think of this that that way. Last time you got stuck in traffic, who were you cursing? The God of traffic, huh? God of traffic screwed you over. Or the government who took your taxes. What about um, the COVID gods that are ruining the world? China. <laughs> so if you look at your life through an untrained eye, you see many forces controlling your destiny. Many forces. We're surrounded by forces, the forces of gravity, the force of medicine, right? The, for, the laws of, of, that be, the powers that be, the governments, wars. There are so many different powers, astrological signs. You were just born that way, born with bad luck, your DNA, right? Your, 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 your stars, your fortune, you know, like who knows? But there's lots of stuff controlling our destiny. And it's very easy to say that the God, the gods of traffic ruined my day today. Or the gods of cars made my car not work. Honestly, we live our lives like that. Don't tell me I'm wrong. 
You know what the proof is that we believe in other gods? That you believe in other gods? That I believe in other gods? I'm going to tell you a proof. This is amazing. What happened yesterday when you got stuck in traffic? Or when your phone like glitched and you, or you, your computer was slow? Or someone didn't show up for that business? Or you didn't get the job? Or you lost money in the stock market? What, you, what was your reaction? Upset, sad, or angry, angry. I am in a self-improvement uh, chabura, a workshop, self-improvement workshop. We meet once a month, and I actually have to pay money to be part of it. And each for one meeting once a month, sounds ridiculous. Why am I paying money for it? Because I want to buy in to force myself to do this, what this workshop demands. So the workshop gets together once a month, and each each month for a period of like a, a while, we we work on a different trait, character trait. So this starting yesterday uh, on Monday, we met and we started a new trait. We're working on the trait of patience. Okay, and but from a Torah perspective, and the the idea of patience from a Torah perspective is different than the idea of patience in a uh, in a secular context. I don't even know what it means yet. We didn't we didn't define it yet. But everything has a deep a, comes from a deep source. So the first exercise for this month is to tr write down how many times you get angry throughout the day. And the the source that we read to begin this this practice was from the Zohar Kabbalistic source that says that when a person gets angry, and this is from the Talmud, it's as if they worship other other gods. When a person gets angry, and the Zohar explains that when you get angry, your soul leaves you, and you get filled with an animalistic spirit. How? What does that mean? Why is it as if you worship idols every time you get angry? Because was when was when you get angry, you're saying this shouldn't be happening to me. I shouldn't be stuck in traffic right now. I shouldn't burn my tongue. My soup shouldn't be cold. Right? Every time we get angry, what we're essentially saying is that we think the world should run according to us. When you get angry, you're essentially worshiping who? Yourself. You're saying I'm in charge. Or you're saying, you're saying something is controlling me against my will. So not only am I in charge, but something else is in charge of me. Something is not letting me be in charge. And if you really believe that all there is is God, so there's no such thing as anger. Because the traffic is from Hashem. The job you didn't get is from Hashem. Your phone not working is from Hashem. And I found myself yesterday. So he said, what we're writing down is not when you blow up at someone. That's losing control. That's real anger. But the root of anger is every time you go, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> like every time the car cuts you off, and you're like, eh. <laughs> or like I noticed it like literally like 10 times while I was driving. 10 times while I was driving, I got annoyed. I noticed it like 10 times when I was trying to do something on the computer and it was like too slow. Right, and and so on and so forth, and many many more times with our interactions with people, you see a person, you're just like you feel for a split second 
a tightness in your stomach and you feel yourself withdrawing and wanting to smack the person in the face or getting annoyed at the person for no reason at all. We do it. He said, if you don't track at least 30 times a day, you're not being honest with yourself. 30 times a day, we believe in other gods. 30 times a day, we think we're in charge and that that thing that's controlling us shouldn't be. We want to assert our independence. So true belief that Hashem is one is recognizing that everything happens to you for a reason. There is no need to ever lose your patience, lose your cool. A life of tranquility and inner peace because everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. That's what it means that Hashem is one. But the main point is that God is our God. Why? Because there are other gods. We believe in other forces. But you know what? We believe in other forces. We believe in astrological forces that control your destiny. We believe in gods of nature and angels. The Talmud says every blade of grass has an angel. Right? We believe in all sorts of spiritual forces. The gods that were worshipped were either astrological signs or different spiritual forces controlling reality, different aspects of nature. But you know what? All those forces are really one. Because Hashem is ultimately programming all of those forces. So those forces are just the pieces of the matrix that come into the world to blind us from reality that all there is is God. So we don't worship the gods because that's missing the point. Those gods don't have independent power. That's like going to Walmart and trying to pay off the guy at the cash register to give you a discount. He's not in charge. He just works there. You got to talk to the boss. So Hashem runs reality. So there's no point getting upset at the gods, and there's no point trying to appease the gods or worship the gods, because those gods are nothing. They're real, but they have no power of their own. That's what we say when we say the Shema. So on one level, the Shema is saying that Hashem is our God, but really he's the God of everything. And someday the whole world will recognize that Hashem is one. And the other deeper explanation is that Hashem is our God. That the powers that be, well, we go directly to Hashem. Hashem is the power. And all those different forces are one. So the nations of the world worship gods with a lowercase g. They worship the forces themselves. We go straight to the source. Hashem is our God. What's a God? The thing that you talk to when you need help. You need your crops to grow. You talk to the God of sunlight. You need rain. You talk to the God of rain. We talk to Hashem for all those things. Hashem is our God. Get it? Okay. So now. Okay. So what is slavery? What is exile? So we learn that the idea of the breaks in the Parsha that we talked about, the spaces, has a lot to do with exile. Because there's a Parsha in the Torah that has no breaks, zero breaks. And that's the Parsha that we read a few weeks ago, Ve'yetze, where Yaakov goes out of Israel and gives birth to the 12 tribes. He literally is leaving home. He's going away from Israel. And there's no breaks. And so we learn that when you're out of Israel, there's no breaks. You lose those spaces. What's the purpose of the spaces? So Rashi tells us in Leviticus that the purpose of the spaces is when God was talking to Moshe and teaching him the Torah, he gave him space. 
breaks to meditate and contemplate on each idea. So the spaces have to do with time to reflect and to meditate and to internalize. When you're in a state of exile, you're literally in a state of small-mindedness, of lack of ability to connect to yourself. With disconnection, because we're, we don't have space. We don't have space to meditate and to reflect. That's the idea of slavery. Slavery is losing sight of the big picture, disconnection from self. Now, there's a physical slavery in the land of Egypt. The Jewish people were in exile. They were slaves. But there's also a spiritual slavery, which can take, is taking place right now. You don't have to be enslaved by a big slave owner. You can be enslaved by yourself. You can be enslaved by the government or by your boss. But ultimately, slavery is a state of mind, and we are all in it because we think that the world is the way it is. We think the matrix is real. When you think the matrix is real, you're in slavery. When you think that you're bound by the laws of gravity, you think this is air we're breathing. All right? You th if you truly get it, you don't have to dodge bullets. Get it? I'm quoting from the matrix. I forgot the actual quotes. But the, when you get it, the laws of the matrix no longer apply because the laws are just there to hide God's reality. Once you get that all there is God, the laws don't apply to you. That's why righteous people can perform miracles. Sadiqim, because they're not living in this world. So, um, okay. So the idea of Shema is to break out of the slavery is to expand your consciousness, to acknowledge everything is Hashem, all there is is God, everything is one. We have a mitzvah to say the Shema in the morning, in the prayer service, at night in the prayer service, and it's also said before going to sleep at night, last thing you do before you go to sleep is say the Shema, and before you pass away. What's the meditation? Why do we do it at those times? It's to recognize in the morning, everything that's going to happen to me today is from Hashem. The traffic, the boss, the deadlines, the wife, the kids, it's all from Hashem. At the end of the day, go back to your day and see how everything that happened to you was for a reason. Everything that happened to you was from Hashem. There's no, there's no point being upset. There's actually a beautiful um, prayer that we say before saying the Shema at night, before going to sleep, where you forgive everyone that hurt you that day. That's amazing. Imagine that every day just be clean because no one hurt you. If you got hurt, wasn't those people. They have no, they're all robots. It was Hashem. Hashem wanted you to go through that experience for whatever reason. So when the, when the Torah says that Rashi, the Rashi's first explanation that the eyes and the hearts of the Jewish people became closed because of the slavery at the death of Yaakov. And yet the slavery didn't start yet for several decades. The answer is the physical slavery didn't start, but the spiritual slavery started. And what is spiritual slavery? When your eyes and your heart become closed. That is spiritual slavery. When you lose the big picture clarity. So why couldn't Yaakov reveal the big picture? 
Why can he tell us when Mashiach will come? Why can he tell us the end? So let me ask you a question. We know that we were we have to go through this gullus. We have to go through exile. We have to go through a time where God is hidden. It's part of the big picture. We need to go through it because we need to find him for ourselves. We need to go through the struggles and the hardship of this world. If if you knew with clarity, imagine, put yourself back in 1940, Europe, going through a Holocaust. If someone told you, you know what? It's going to it's going to be really hard. But you're going to get out. They're going to build the, rebuild the state of Israel. All the Jews are going to go back to Israel. And in another 80, few, 85 years, Mashiach will come. There'll be world peace. The whole world will be as one. We just had to go through this final suffering before Mashiach. What would that do for your experience during the Holocaust? But it, no, no, if you knew it, if you knew it, if you knew with clarity that the Holocaust would be a, a, a growing pain to bring you to the greatest conclusion of human history, would it make it a little, it would make it a little less painful? Ah, maybe, maybe. Maybe uh, Yaakov didn't want to reveal it because we might lose hope, but I don't know if we'd lose hope. No, forget. No. Why not? Why not? That's the question. Why couldn't Yaakov reveal it? Why? Ah. Okay. If we knew, then we might not work as hard. Okay, good. So, like this. When, I, when we have to take our kids to get a shot, so our kids, my wife wants to take the kids to get a flu shot. She's freaking out about the flu suddenly. Apparently the flu is everywhere now. It's not COVID anymore. It's the flu. And um, so the kids are scared, right? But we know that it's going to be over in a minute and it's good for you, hopefully. So um, when you know the end, you've had it done before. You know, it's painful for a split second. It goes away. No problems. And you know, it's for your good. Even a woman in labor, which is the most pain probably that a human can go through, knows that the labor is bringing her to a destination. It's not going to last forever. It's going to be over at a certain time. When you know the end result, the suffering becomes much less. So Yaakov knew that if he told us when the end would come, then there would be no gullus. There would be no exile. Because when you have that big picture clarity, there is no suffering. Says the Baal Shem Tov, Redemption is not a time. It's a state of mind. And you can be redeemed right now. You can live in the Messianic era right now. How? Open your mind to recognize that all there is is Hashem. You're living in Mashiach times right now. We don't have to wait. So Yaakov wanted to tell them the big picture clarity. We couldn't get the full picture. But we can, because we, we have to do the work a little bit. It would be too easy. If we saw the end of history, we knew exactly what was going to happen. Holocaust, State of Israel, COVID, and then Mashiach, it, it would be too easy. But on our own, we can get that same clarity through the Shema. And that was the response of the children, is Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. And there's another message here. 
Yaakov gathered his sons together to tell them what would be at the end of days. And the, 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 the divine presence left him. That's what's going to be at the end of days. Hashem's presence is going to be hidden. We're going to lose that clarity. We're going to lose the clear, direct revelation of Hashem in the world. What's the response? The other thing Yaakov tells them. Gather around, my sons, and I will show you what will be at the end of time. He just told us. Did you get that? Gather around when all the Jewish people come together as one. Shema Israel, Hashem Echad. Just like God is one, so to the Jewish people are one. Yaakov is also showing us how are we going to actually bring Mashiach. In a time when Hashem is hidden, in a time when we become one, when we unite as a nation, the Jewish people become one, then Mashiach will come. He's literally giving us the keys to the redemption. Is recognizing that Hashem is one, recognizing that the Jewish people is one, even when we don't see it. It's through that unity. When we unite, and when we open our eyes and our hearts, well, the Talmud tells us, the Talmud tells us that why was the temple destroyed? Why were we kicked out of the land of Israel? Because what? Because of what? No. Why were we kicked out of the land of Israel? You know this, Julia. Tisha B'Av. Why were we kicked out of Israel? What, what did we do to destroy the temple? No. Well, yes, kind of. But the second temple. Second temple. That was the first temple. Second temple. Baseless hatred. Sinas chinam. Because we didn't love each other. We didn't recognize that we're one nation, unified nation. One nation under God. But it's not really one nation under God. It's one nation with God. Because it's through that unity that God is revealed. And literally, we are the different colors that coming together reveal the white light of God. Because God is in each and every one of us. And when we come together as one, then we truly reveal the oneness of God in this world. And all of the suffering disappears. So we should all be blessed to step out of our own slavery. Out of our own narrow-mindedness our own constricted consciousness and embrace God consciousness, which is oneness, to recognize that there are no gods. All the gods are subservient to the one God. There is no traffic. There is no taxes. There are no rival football teams. All there is is unity and harmony and oneness, and everything that happens to you is a message from the loving God, and therefore there's no need to ever get angry. No need to ever get upset. And if we can really get that, then we can really be one as a nation. As the Balatanya says, the, the first Chabad Rebbe in the Tanya, that the greatest litmus test of how spiritual you are is how much you love other Jews. Because the more you connect to your soul, the more you realize that my soul and your soul are really one. And the more you love other people and see the unity around you, the more you're recognizing the unity within you which is the, the closest direct connection we have to God, which is within ourselves. Thank you guys so much for listening. Wishing you all a beautiful week, beautiful Shabbos, a beautiful life. Now, questions.